And our Old Testament passage comes from Isaiah, chapter 40, Isaiah being the prophet of hope. Isaiah 40, oops, Isaiah 40, I probably broke everything, didn't I? It'll start back up. Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse uh, 11. Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. This is God's Word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of the Lord our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, says, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And then over to our passage for tonight, John chapter 3. And verses 22 to 36. John 3, 22 to 36. Jesus, of course, has just spoken, by the way, to uh, Nicodemus, telling him he, uh, should, he must be born again. Uh, Just before this, we get that wonderful passage, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And then we get this narrative here, this account in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aon near Selim, because water was plentiful there. 
And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look. He is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. But I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly in an earthly way. Who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And we'll focus tonight uh, really just on verses 22 to 30 here. But I wanted to read all of that uh, for context. But let's pray very quickly. Father, um, may your spirit accompany your word and teach us. And may we exalt Jesus. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen. In in March of 1839, um, Robert Murray McShane and a group of Scottish ministers were called to journey over to the Holy Land, uh, to to Palestine, to evangelize uh, the Jews there. And what is so remarkable is is not that McShane went over to Palestine that. That happened often during those times, so that's not so surprising. Um, But what happened while he was gone in his own church, under the preaching of the guest pastor, um, that was actually an incredible thing. The pastor, his name was William Burns. And, and under his preaching, um, this great revival broke out. And if any of you know about Robert Murray McShane, he was a, it was a powerful preacher. And when McShane returned to the pulpit, um, many welcomed him with open arms. They were glad to have their pastor back. Um, but some were not so quiet about the fact that they'd rather, ha- rather have the interim pastor <laughs> as their real pastor or their ongoing pastor instead of McShane. 
And for a while in the church, there was sort of that taking of sides. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. And it was ugly for a little while. And I just tell that story because that's kind of what is in the heart of John's disciples here. As they come to John um, and they begin to recognize that he is sort of decreasing in popularity. And John takes that opportunity to teach his disciples and really to teach us about what is most important in the ministry of the church. That no matter who's in a pulpit or where they are, or whether they're in a pulpit or in a pew, that the exaltation of Jesus must be front and center in everything that the church does. In the life and ministry of the church, we are to, as we sing, lift high the cross. And so let's see a couple of things this evening. Because what happens here is that in humility, John the Baptist exalts Christ. And he does this in three ways. First, by confessing God's sovereignty. Second, by his joy over Christ's exaltation. And then third, by his desire to see Christ increase. Okay, so John is exalting Christ in humility, and he first does this, notice, by confessing the sovereignty of God. Now, now remember where we are in, in John's gospel. We are told that after his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus goes out with his disciples to the countryside, and he begins baptizing. Now, it's, it, it's important for us to know that that we're, we're told in other places that Jesus himself was not baptizing, but the disciples are baptizing in his name. All right, so as disciples are following him, they are baptizing and they are baptizing in his name. In, at the same time, John was baptizing at near the same place in Anon near Selim. Remember, he hadn't been thrown into prison yet. There was a time in which the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John overlapped. And this argument starts, and that's really what it is. It's not really a discussion. You know, spouses like to say, well, mom and dad were just having a discussion. No, you were arguing. Um, but they are arguing. And it starts between John... And, and probably Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples over purification rite, rites of some sort. We're not sure exactly which ones, but that's what they were arguing about. And John's disciples take this opportunity during this dispute to bring to John's attention that Jesus is baptizing more people than John is. And that he's gaining more popularity than John is. And his disciples are increasing. In fact, they, look at what they say in verses 25 
and 26, or just 26. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. They're probably exaggerating. They're kind of freaked out. Right? They have been following John for some time now. They had seen people come to faith through John's preaching about repenting for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and now they're saying to John, everybody's coming to him. You could also almost hear the, the desperation uh, in their voice, maybe the envy in their voice, maybe the resentment in their voice. And so John had had this rocket-like rise to fame. And then just like a shooting star, it seems to his disciples that it's fizzling out. But listen to what John says in response to that. In humility, he takes solace in, comfort in, God's sovereignty, verses 27 and 28. Actually, you might have that here somewhere. Since I dropped the... um, A person, look at what he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So John is very keenly aware that this has been brought about by God's design and plan and his sovereign will. It is one of the things that kept him humble. He understood that if, if, if Jesus is attracting more followers and gaining more followers than he was, it was because God had given those to Christ. And he understood that if God used him for a time and that time was up, then that was in God's sovereign plan as well. And he understood that everything that he had, the popularity, the words to speak, the disciples that were following him, were all given to him by God. And that truly he could claim no glory, no prowess, no success for himself. Do we see that to confess God's Sovereign control of everything in every situation is a testimony to humility that God is working in our hearts and 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 even more an, an exaltation of Jesus because that what that does is it takes away from us any room for boasting and actually fills our hearts with thankfulness. 
It is actually the difference between pride and Christ-based confidence. Because everything that we are able to accomplish or succeed in or do for the kingdom of Christ, we are confident in the work that the Lord is doing in us and not in ourselves alone. And this was the attitude of John the Baptist. He's like, remember, I told you, I'm not him. I've been sent to prepare the way for him, but I am not him. I am a servant. He will go on to say, I'm a friend of the bridegroom. And that actually enables him to rejoice in the glory of Christ. By the way, it helps us rejoice in the ways that the Lord uses other people and not be envious. Because both of us, me or this other person, are both exalting Christ together. And we want the exaltation of Christ together. Instead of our hearts being filled with envy, because the goal is the exaltation of Jesus. And so we rejoice with those who rejoice. We rejoice at the successes of other believers in their work in the kingdom of God. And when we see the Lord using them in powerful and mighty ways, we praise God with them. Envy, right, is the opposite. It weeps when other people rejoice. It weeps at people's successes because, well, it's not me. But when Christ and his love has so filled our hearts, we rejoice with them. Because God is using him, and maybe he uses us for a time and uses them for a time. And then maybe uses us for a time again, and then them for a time, all for the glory of Jesus. John has this settledness about him because of his confidence in Christ and in God's sovereign plan. Second, John here is in humility, exalting Jesus, and he does this not just by confessing the sovereignty uh, of God here, but he rejoices over Christ's exaltation. He rejoices over Christ being exalted over his own popularity. And to help the disciples understand this, of course, he uses this illustration of being the friend of, uh, of the bridegroom. Now, back in the times uh, of Christ, the friend of the bridegroom was highly involved in planning the wedding, not like friends of grooms today 
who often just show up and don't know what they're doing, right? (laughs) He is very involved in helping to orchestrate the wedding and plan the wedding. He even goes as far as to arrange the engagement for his friend who is the bridegroom. And then during the ceremony, often he would bring the bride in so that the bridegroom, who sometimes actually is the one who came in from outside, could be brought to her, highly involved. Now, John's illustration is deeply rooted in the Old Testament, and in part this is to show the importance of the place that John had in the history of salvation. Because many times in the Old Testament, you see this in places like Isaiah 45 or Deuteronomy 31, Israel is compared to a bride and God, the groom, the bridegroom. John says this, I'm I'm the one bringing the church to Jesus, who is the bridegroom. I'm paving the way for him. I'm getting everybody to look up and see who he is. And so, as the friend of the bridegroom, John has prepared the church, the people that he has been ministering to, for the coming of Jesus, who is the bridegroom. And he has made the people ready by preaching and teaching and baptizing in the best way that he knows how. But here's what John recognizes. John knows It's not my wedding. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm serving him. This isn't about me, it's about him. And so when the day of the the wedding comes, which is this this overlapping of ministry between uh, the, the, the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus... And you see this migration of disciples over to Christ and and the the influence of, of Christ growing and growing. John is more than willing. He even rejoices at stepping aside. In fact, he wants to listen to the voice of the bridegroom. And we see this in John's ministry Jesus says of John, there's, there's no greater prophet than John. There's no greater person born in the world than John. And John, in turn, says to, about Jesus, I'm not even worthy to lace up his sandals. It is his joy to step aside so that Jesus can shine. And so he sees people flocking to Jesus, joy. He sees Christ and his ministry being exalted, and John is filled with joy. Because they're becoming Christ's disciples. And so he steps back. Uh, uh, Again, shouldn't that be the call of every Christian? 
And even more particularly pastors who are called to proclaim the name of Jesus and lead the church in service and worship and exaltation of Jesus. You don't have to look very far on the internet, in social media, to find pastors that are more concerned with building empires and their own influence than pointing people to Jesus. They're more interested in using their gifts to exalt themselves than Jesus himself. I think I heard a story about Charles Spurgeon one time and uh, and a popular preacher had come into town and after this preacher had preached, maybe it was in the morning and that preacher preached and went off, um, maybe you've heard this story, that people came out of the church saying, what a great preacher. And all the people gathered back into the church that night to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. And they came out and said, what? What a great Christ. And that should be the goal of all that we do in the church to have our eyes fixed on him and to take all the focus off of ourselves we need to exalt and glorify his name and make so much of him so that we in some sense fade into the background as we minister to others and of course, the role of the, the friend of the bridegroom, especially in, in, the, in this culture, was always to promote the interests of the bridegroom and not their own interests. And so that's our job as Christians, to promote the interests of Christ, to see his character worked in the life of those in the church. And third, really this third thing that John says is the most important. Probably the height of the passage, even. Some of you have probably heard of William Carey. He is one of the greatest missionaries probably to ever live. And when he was dying, he turned to a friend and he said, he said this. He said, when I'm gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. When I die, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William's, William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. Now again... John is this powerful, kind of strange. <laughs> He's eating locusts and honeys He's out in the desert wearing hairy clothes and all of these kinds of things. Everybody knew 
that he was a prophet. Everybody believed that he was a prophet. And he is this mighty, powerful instrument in the Lord's hands. He's a a man of conviction and boldness where he can walk up to the Pharisees and say, you brood of vipers who warned you, right, to flee um, from the judgment to come. And again, Jesus even says of him, nobody's greater than he is. Yet he knows what we all should know, and he practiced what we all should practice. That he was always and forever a servant. And that there's only one king. That there's only one savior. J.C. Ryle said, He was only the forerunner and ambassador. Christ was the king. He was only the morning star. Christ was the sun. Again, of course, this is where my mind goes about people in, in ministry. And whether that's ordained ministry or maybe that's lay ministry. Or, or, or even or even people who have a significant influence in the church because of their years in the church and their wisdom. If this isn't our conviction that he must, and we can even say it this way, he must always increase. And I must always decrease. If that's not our heart, there is so much damage that can be done in the church. But if our desire is that we might decrease so that Jesus is always being set front and center, then I'm convinced that God will bless our endeavors and we'll be successful in our desire to shepherd God's flock, to love one another, and to serve each other. Now, how do we know that this is happening? Most of us, at least in our small denomination, or most of our churches, we don't have large crowds flocking to our churches. How can we measure the desire that we have for Christ to be all? And for us to take sort of the back seat, how can we measure our own commitment and demonstrate our own faith in Christ as Lord and Savior? And we measure it in the same way that John did. In, willing to take, in being willing to take our interests and place them under the interests and honor of Jesus. By a willingness to maybe suffer suffer loss and embarrassment and humiliation and diminishment for the sake of Jesus. To become less that he might become greater. If we see the Lord using someone more powerfully than than we've been used to, to say, go for it. <laughs> 
Be that. Do that. Help in those ways. I mean, how, how much of our pride and our insecurities would just kind of melt away if we would remember those words of John the Baptist, he must increase. I must decrease. How thick would our skin be, so to speak, if we would remember these words, he must increase, I must decrease. How much firmer would our stand for the truth be and and willing to exalt our Savior? How much more willing would we be to, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ for the sake of Christ and the exaltation of Christ? A church filled with humility, constantly decreasing that Jesus might increase. Or as Paul says it in a different way, uh, I think it's in Romans, outdo one another in showing honor for the sake of Christ. We don't have to look very far to, to see that churches decay and they fall away when they think less of Christ. and more of themselves. Or even less of Christ and more of their pastors. But churches revive and churches thrive. They receive spiritual drink and food and blessing as we kind of get out of our own way. (laughs) We think less of ourselves and more of Christ And what he is doing in us. To think less of ourselves is not about self-loathing in some um, hateful, harmful way. It means to do away with our pride. And allow Christ to be all in all. Again, we'll uh, close with J.C. Rowell. He's so good here. His commentary, by the way, on John is really devotional. So if you don't have it, it's like three volumes, or maybe they have it in one volume now, but he says this, To a decaying church, the sun is going down, and the stars are beginning to appear. That would be the people. To a reviving church, the stars are waning, and the sun appearing. And that's a call for us to see the sun appearing, the S-O-N, sun appearing, the only begotten Son of God. And so may he always and forever increase. And may we decrease. Let's pray. Father, um, drive this into our hearts. Lord, help this to be a... A type of decreasing that is that is not unhealthy or self-loathing, but but opens our hearts up, Father, for the work of your spirit and grace in them.
so that we would boast in nothing except Christ and Him crucified. We ask for this change, Father, in us. We ask it in Jesus' name, who actually decreased for us. We ask it in His name. Amen.